0: Welcome to The Local Authority, the podcast by Local Government Chronicle and TPX Impact. Each month, we bring together leading figures from within and around local government to discuss the sector's future. If you enjoy listening to The Local Authority, hit the subscribe button to have new episodes delivered to your device each month. You can share this podcast with your colleagues by going to lgcplus.com
1: forward slash podcast. Welcome to The Local Authority. This is a podcast from Local Government Chronicle and TPX Impact, formerly FutureGov. I'm Nick Golding, the LGC Editor. Each month we bring together some of the biggest names in and around local governments to discuss some of the biggest issues facing local governments. The theme of the local authority is one of change, how councils can change their area and themselves for the better. And today we're discussing social care. Boris Johnson arrived in Downing Street promising he had a plan to fix social care. It took two years for this plan to see the light of day, and this involves increasing national insurance contributions to put a cap on the care costs in individual faces. However, much of this money will go to the NHS. We've also seen one of the two white papers promised. It pledged to give care recipients more choice and control over their care, but many said such a promise was worthless without far more money and we still await a white paper on the integration of services. So where does this leave local leaders and service users in the here and now? What can councils and their local partners do to improve services? And what measures can be taken to empower service users? We've got a great panel today. It is, we've got Sally Warren, the Director of Policy at the King's Fund. We have Rob Walsh, the Chief Executive of both Northeast Lincolnshire Council and Northeast Lincolnshire Clinical Commissioning Group, and David Eyre, local government partner at TPX Impact. Um, Sally, can I start by turning to you, please? I just wanted to get a sense from you what the current underlying state of social care is nationwide.
2: Thanks, Nick. Uh, It's great to be with you all today. So social care is in a really uh, quite fragile and delicate position um on the back of multiple years of underfunding and then the last couple of years of the covid pandemic so if we if we think about different aspects of of that fragility uh, we know there's an awful lot of unmet need so people have social care needs and they're not being met by the system or they're having to wait a long time uh, to be met that obviously puts um those individuals are living a poorer quality life might put extra pressure on informal carers and on other parts of of the public sector as well so we know from a People who rely on social care, uh, there are real weaknesses at the moment. If we then um, think about the workforce, we know that this is a unfortunately a low paid workforce. That means that there's a high number of vacancies and a high level of turnover. And those vacancies are increasing um, at the moment as we still continue to to deal with the COVID pandemic. So very high levels of vacancy now at eleven or twelve percent uh, in some parts of the sector. Um, Then we think about providers uh, who are predominantly the ones delivering care for um, having been commissioned by local authorities. We're seeing a number of providers handing back contracts or uh, no longer running services because they're not able to deliver the quality of care that they want to with the, uh, the fees that they can get. And then if we look at local authorities, obviously, we're well aware of the austerity impact on local authorities over the last decade or so. And that's meant that local authorities are kind of trying to square the circle of increasing Increasing demand, wanting to transform services, but a very, very tight budget position. So we kind of enter this phase of government wanting to reform and improve social care, with social care in a very perilous position for the people it's meant to serve, the people working in it, and those local authorities and providers trying to steer the ship.
1: And we've heard a lot lately about the impact of the pandemic, and in particular, people who are ready to leave hospitals but for whom no social care is is available. I mean, what, what impact has the pandemic had? on on social care and the and the integration in the system
2: Yeah, so uh, this is a real challenge at the moment. And it's it's kind of not surprising to an awful lot of people who understand the social care system, because of the tight squeeze on funding, because of the real workforce uh, capacity issues, it's meant that there just isn't as much capacity in social care anymore. So home care providers aren't able to provide the scale of home care packages they'd like to, because they've got 11 or 12% vacancy. So they just don't have the workforce to deliver that care. That then means that um, more people are stranded in hospital, Uh, they would want to leave, they'd want to be able to get home or go to a a care home. And obviously the NHS would be keen for them to move on because they're medically fit. But there just isn't the capacity there. And what that can mean is obviously the health and care system is hugely interdependent and and interconnected. So when you start to have pressures at different points of the system, be that extra demand coming through the front door of the healthcare system, and real then challenges about supporting people to leave hospital, you can get to a point where uh, the whole system is very, very pressurized, there's very little space uh, for kind of dealing with crises and pressures. And what we're seeing is hospital capacity uh, is really stretched through COVID uh, patients and through this kind of that patient flow problem uh, which is, is a real challenge
1: um, I mentioned that this white paper that appeared before Christmas it promised to put service users in control of, of, of what they receive is it is this a new thing
2: no I mean personalization in social care has been um, a long triumph a, a long called for um, reform and actually I think a lot of Personally, personal control and person-centered public services actually started with the disability movements, disability rights in the 1980s. So I often think social care has really been at the forefront of that personalization agenda. But what we saw with the white paper was some really good intentions around personalization and around improving quality and innovation. But unfortunately, with a level of funding that's just as far away from what's needed to turn that into a reality, because for people to really have personalized care and person-centered care, They need to know that their needs will be met, know that they've got an adequate budget and have services out there that are diverse and going to meet their specific needs, if actually there's not enough capacity, if there's not enough different types of services, it's just personalisation in name only, really. It's not, I, I don't have a real choice about how I want to have my needs met. So uh, as I say, good policy intention, not new, but, but good to see it reaffirmed. But unfortunately, the kind of scale of ambition of investment that sits behind that, I think is some way off of, of what we would all want to see.
1: Now, the government announced that national insurance is going to rise to pay you for social care and clear the backlog in NHS services. Is that going to provide sufficient money for radical reform?
2: So the national insurance rise uh, will raise around 30 billion over three years in England. And about six billion of that is going to social care over that time. So it's a small proportion of the overall amount. Um, quite a lot of that is then going to paying for the cap, which is an important step forward. It's good that we finally got um, progress on social care funding reform having been stored for five or six years, although there are significant issues with how this is going to be implemented uh, in terms of some regressive elements. But That then means the rest of reform, there's not a huge amount of money for social care. So the White Paper only allocated £1.1 billion for new innovation and reform and change. That's £1.1 billion over three years. That's a very, very small drop in the ocean in terms of the scale of change. And that's on the backdrop of a spending review, which on a like-for-like basis allowed local authorities a 1.8% increase in spending power. Um, if everybody increases council tax by the maximum amount. Now, we know demand and cost in social care is going up at a much higher rate than that I've spoken to some local authorities who vary from saying they think their social care costs might go up by 6% this year to some saying it's as high as 9 or 10%. Uh, it doesn't take it a mathematical genius to work out. Both of those numbers are considerably higher than 1.8%. So I think there's a real challenge about is the funding for the current um, existing system enough and then the kind of very low level of investment for that reform uh, that goes along the, with the white paper. What
1: do we know about the government's vision for integrated? care services.
2: Yeah, so we are now expecting a, a further white paper on, on integration between uh, health and social care. Um, it's not completely clear what's going to be in that. But I think where um, where I feel really positive about it is it feels like it is integration for population health, which really, I think, speaks to the, the wider determinants and that broader agenda that local government have always known that they could really contribute to and really drive uh, from a, a place-based perspective. So that feels really positive, that kind of how can all of the partners genuinely come together together um, and uh, drive those wider determinants drive population health it's also for me a clear sign that in the past we've talked about integration an awful lot i think if we were all honest we kind of knew that meant the nhs was talking about integrating with itself and they would occasionally think about social care again this thing seems to be much more about how we can think about the system as a whole so integrating hospital with primary with community health and with social care so that feels really positive and it's also um strongly about the place level. So obviously, the the large reform so far, which is currently uh, subject to parliamentary scrutiny through the Health and and Care Bill has been around integrated care systems, which are very large footprints above local authority level. Um, But actually, the the next integration white paper, we expect to be really emphasising that actually the the bulk of stuff to join up services and to really drive population health will happen at that place level. So I think that's a really exciting opportunity for local authorities really to help drive this agenda and kind of shift how we've tended to think about health from thinking about healthcare to genuinely thinking about population health and well-being.
1: And there's been much talk about the, the idea of a single leader across the NHS um, and social care services in, in, at each local level how do you think that would work and is it possible for that single leader to effectively report up to having two two systems um and separate masters in different systems
2: yeah it's it's a real dilemma isn't it um so i i think you could foresee a world in which there was Greater certainty about accountability at a local level that was shared, be that a single person, a a joint role. There could be different models uh, to how you achieve that, depending on the history of the relationships in that place and the geography. But I think for me, that's the key. It's different models might work in different places. So if the white paper was to come out with it, the answer is you must have somebody that looks like Rob in every place. Rob's brilliant and lovely and great at his job, but that might not work in every, it might not work in Cornwall. It might not work in Southwark. So I think the key bit is what are we trying to, what does the government want to achieve through that um, that single responsible person or that kind of local leader? And then what are the different ways different places can achieve that? And I think we've all really struggled in the past with a single top-down model. It's really hard to implement effectively when we've got Different geographies, different populations, different histories uh, of those uh, shared uh, kind of ambitions towards integration. So, I hope that we're going to see something that is permissive about how you might achieve something, but clearer about what it is you're trying uh, to bring parties together to achieve.
1: Well, now seems like a good time to bring Robin, Rob in, Rob Walsh, and you're, you're the, the single leader um, across uh, Northeast Lincolnshire's uh, council and clinical commissioning group. Can you explain how your job works? <laughs>
3: Thank you for that Nick. Um, <laughs> that question comes to me a lot um, and there are a few of us in this role I, 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 in the country of course but at Sally's point each place being very very different and so I suppose my answer to the question is it depends on a lot of things but what's driven where we are now here in northeast Lincolnshire and where we're heading actually um, in terms of our place-based focus has been centred around a long-standing developing Um, and really well managed by a number of people across a system relationship between local government and the NHS. So way back in 2007, I I know people have heard me say this before, we formed a care trust. The local authority delegated its adult social care budget into the NHS. Um, The the outgoing PCT, which became the care trust, transferred public health to the local authority. Um, that, That set the tone way back then in terms of integration, More collaboration and partnership than integration, to be honest, but building a lot of trust. Now, when about four or five years ago, when the next step was taken to really bring two organisations much closer together, one chief exec, single team, combining resources, uh, bringing teams together and so on, um, then, then that question you've asked me about how does it work comes to the fore, because you are fusing or attempting to fuse two very different sectors. You are bringing two very different and equally laudable cultures together. You are bringing two sets of great people and experiences together, but from very different perspectives All wanting the same objective. But how you get there is slightly different. And then the accountabilities are very different. Local government accountability is to politicians as a council chief executive. My leader is the boss in my CCG role. It's the CCG chair. Slightly differently in North East Lincolnshire, for example, I am not the accountable officer, whereas a Steve Pleasant in Tameside is also the AO and the chief executive of the council. So I have an accountability to the AO in North East Lincolnshire here, too. My point is this. Those accountabilities tend to work here because of the established relationship and that building of trust and confidence in how we work and operate. And this stuff will not happen overnight. Whatever a white paper says. However well-formed an integrated care system is and however well-intended local systems are, you've got to build the trust, the confidence and the relationships. Fail, learn from it and keep going.
1: So how does the system you've got there contribute to better services? Um, I
3: think the last two years, particularly for obvious reasons, has shown us that when you can, this might sound a bit corny, when you can meet as a team together across two organisations that have huge responsibilities across a population, health and local government you meet as a team once you make one set of reasonably well informed decisions you communicate those decisions with the support from your clinical and your political leadership and you have public health in this instance right at the heart of that and becoming even more at the heart of that over the last 2 years we've seen that we've been able to respond more effectively make decisions more effectively and work more effectively for example with our local acute trust which is under immense you know pressure as is every acute trust um so i think The service improvements have been born of a response to the real service improvements for me, being honest, have been born of a response over the last two years, required us to work very, very differently and with more agility and taking a lot more risk together. But that single line of sight, that single line of communication, that single line of engagement and a genuine focus on place has helped us get stuff done quicker, better and at risk. And my concern is that we go backwards and we don't build on it. And that's the risk with some of this stuff that we think, ah, you know, Two years has been really challenging and very, very difficult. Let's take a breather and let's go back to the way it was. You now, we've got to keep going. And I hope that with the development of ICSs, um, with whatever white papers come forward, we're given the discretion and that flexibility, as Sally said, to ensure that every place, being different as they are, has that discretion to build on its strengths and keep going, because there's no one size to fit all here.
1: I, um, I, I open this by asking Sally what the state of care is nationwide. Can I ask the same question to you about what the state of care is in North East Lincolnshire?
3: Health inequality gap as a, as a starter for 10 has probably widened for obvious reasons. Um, we've got some deep-seated deprivation challenges in a place like North East Links. Um, we've also got significant pockets of wealth and opportunity. So we've always got that that, that, that contrast. Um, we've got an aging population. Um, there is significant demand in the system across adults and children's social care, some immense challenges in children's social care. Um, I, I think, where we are benefiting from meeting some of those challenges is I would say this wouldn't I that track record of working across a system already so we ain't perfect here we've got a lot to learn but system working and the way that we've had to place teams in different organizations my adult social care team is placed in the CCG my director of adult social services my DAS is in the CCG Um, we've got a developing integrated care partnership at place which is bringing primary care um, adult social care, the acute trust, um, uh, social enterprise providers in relation to mental health and community services together. GPs you know, ac- across the system working more collaboratively together, designing and seeking to transform services locally, um, but having local government at the heart of it as well as equal partners. So that's enabling us to think about how we meet the challenges, but they are acute, demand is not diminishing, um, and. I think, you know, take, take things like funding and, and the adult social care precept. If I say to you in North East Links, one percent of council tax or the precept is equivalent to about 700,000 pounds. What Sally was saying earlier about that funding gap and that challenge translates to us into a significant challenge in relation to care, whether it's domiciliary, residential or in hospital, because, you know, at some point, some point that, that that circle has to be squared. And whilst it isn't just about funding, sometimes it actually is.
1: So presumably you, you need significantly more funding to get to the situation where you're providing the care and that you want to provide.
3: Um, we certainly need more, um, but who doesn't? Um, but I think it's not just about the money; it's what you do with it, it's where you invest it, and it's where it's where those decisions and those those design decisions are made together. It can't be one part of the system doing this. It's got to be collaborative and it's got to be well intended and genuine. Um, and the model we're developing here under the pitch for Northeast Lincolnshire. Is intended to bring a system that's already close even closer together, so we can really have some tough and difficult conversations about where resources are best used, where they're best invested, and wherever, wherever that funding comes from, whether it's from down from the ICB, uh, whether it's from from collaboratives, it comes into one place where there's a conversation about Northeast Linkage's health and care pound, and decisions are made there in that space and trusted to be to be implemented by the organizations that take them away again that sounds grand but that's what we should be aiming for and that's what we're pushing for here in northeast links
1: what what feedback do you get from service users about what they like in your system and what what's improvements they believe could be made
3: we get feedback around still too much bureaucracy um too many layers of decision making we get feedback about um sometimes the the language we use and the way that it's communicated but that's also balanced by feedback around the quality of the outcome some people experience um, particularly the benefits for example of stuff around social prescribing different models of care um but we're no you know we're we're on, we're on a journey it sounds corny um i think that community engagement piece the listening actively piece to shape and inform how we design services going forward um, is a real both a challenge, but also an absolute opportunity. And again, massive integrated care systems. Fair enough, we're all part of that. And we're, help, we're We're working to support the development of ICSs, but place is where action is. And place systems and partners in the place need to be listening together, uh, responding together and designing together. If we don't do it together, um, I think we'll have three or four versions of the truth and that will slow down decision-making and be a detriment to what outcomes people deserve locally. So we, we get mixed feedback, like most of the systems, but it's what we do with it that counts. And we, we're, we're, we are certainly more joined up as a council and a CCG in terms of what we do with it when we get it and how we apply those lessons going forward.
1: Well, across the country, there's been difficulties with the social care workforce. It's uh, people aren't paid enough. Um, it's a very difficult, demanding job. Um, what's the morale like among your workforce there? It, it's low.
3: Um, you know our geography is our challenge we've talked about this a lot nick in terms of you know northeast lincolnshire grimsby some of the some of the perceptions completely wrong of course about places like ours um but the, the fact is i mean in our region the humber sub-region the workforce challenge and indeed in the whole ics Humber coast and vale the workforce challenge is significant um speaking about my own part of that patch there's a lot about how we sell market and um create the right image. And perception of our place. Why come to Northeast Lincolnshire? Why come and work in the Humber? What what, what are the benefits? Um, so I think again, that's the that's the, that, that's one of the challenges around this stuff. It's not just about what do we do about health and social care integration, but from a workforce perspective, why how do we get people here in the first place? How do we encourage them to stay? And that's about the wider offer. And the wider opportunities, you know, whether it's housing, whether it's quality of life and whether it's the great Lancashire Wolds that are on my doorstep, all that stuff, you know, it's the package. And that's where local government and NHS and and the voluntary community sector also need to converse. So we have the same narrative, the same message and the same package in the same offer. Um, Again, that sounds idealistic, but that's the sort of stuff we should all be aiming for. And those conversations will be happening across the country. How do you make sure your place is attractive? That's where local government's got a really important role to play, but it can't do it on its own.
1: And we open by talking about what the government's long term vision is. Can I ask you what your long term vision is in North East Lincolnshire? How do you think it will evolve over the coming years? And is there anything you need to get there other than money? Do you need more powers, for instance?
3: Um, We'll always need more money. (laughs) I think freedom, sounds really grand, doesn't it, and discretion and flexibility to do things differently, to share risk more openly. You know, we're talking about local government and the NHS here, two different beasts with laudable aims, with great people, but slightly different systems and influences. Um, But if you've got what we're developing here and, and learning from our experiences around, for example, Um, The ICP I talked about, that local ICP, bringing local providers together to work together on one set of aims and objectives and really build genuine, open, challenging conversations with each other. You get to the point where actually your proposed health and care joint committee is actually having one conversation about how do we influence as a health and care system the wider determinants of health? How do we plug into the health and well-being board in North East Lincoln to make sure as a system and place leading body, it is shaping the place informed by our view as a health and care system about those wider determinants. And if workforce is a big challenge, let's focus on the skills conversation, for example, and how we can influence that and so on and so on. Um, Idealistic Rob talking like that again. But again, that's what we should be aiming for. That's my vision. Um, A system that works coherently, openly and honestly, has the freedom to lead democratically and clinically its place, is focused on the place agenda, but is pragmatic, very pragmatic and realistic about what needs to be done at scale on a larger footprint. That's how it should be. But you need the freedom and the flexibility to do that. Um, ICSs should develop in that way, he says.
1: Great. I'm going to turn to David Air now. Uh, David's the um, local government partner at TPX Impact. I just want you to explain um, what your role is and what, what's, what's your interactions with councils and the NHS
4: for that matter on, on care services. Yeah. So uh, my role is broadly um, split into three parts. So part of that is leading on some of our direct delivery, and so that is looking at the nature of the work that we deliver into client organisations, be they local government, healthcare, third sector, anyone else. And equally, for me personally, business development. So trying to like understand more about the needs of the sector. So thinking around like what it is that I'm hearing from the conversations I have, from the conferences that I go to, from the Um, places that I am uh, and thinking about how we can translate that back into what it is that we can offer Um, and then thinking as well around like well what's our strategy do we have the people who can deliver that or do we need to recruit or do we need to think differently about models of partnerships both with other organizations similarly to ourselves and also those much more kind of locally grounded so um, like our role is often that we're as an organization brought in locally by someone like Rob uh, who says I've got this problem, I'd love your help in helping to understand it better and thinking about how we can do something differently. So that could be um, leveraging new and emerging technologies. It could be thinking about what the role of communities are in a place. It could be thinking about the kind of ways of working and the practices of staff or or even supporting some of that stuff around recruitment as well. So thinking about the skills and the capabilities that you need for the future. So yeah, quite a, a multifaceted role, both for me and the organization out into the sector as well.
1: So presumably you visit quite a lot of different places, interact with lots of different organisations. I just wanted to ask, I mean, what's the, what's the different levels of collaboration and of integration that you see as you go around the country?
4: So um, I think Rob and I, again, sing from a slightly similar hymn sheet here um so i would say that it varies hugely but ultimately it like it varies because of the quality of the relationships that exist within a place so um we talk a lot about collaboration between organizations really it's about collaboration between the people within those organizations and the strength of, of the relationship and the trust that they have within each other and i honestly think that it is largely determined as well by a shared vision, mission, and a set of values. So, like, are you actually pulling in the same direction to achieve a set of outcomes for the people that you are there to serve? Or are you more thinking about how to um, support, like, the running of your own organization and not having that kind of more holistic, outward facing perspective? Like, you are right. I, I do get to go all over the place pre-covid i was uh, i I think 16 hours a week on trains every week as a minimum so i'll be honest that's one of the things i miss slightly less than some of the other stuff um but yeah if you consider from kent to cornwall and up to newcastle and back across to manchester and liverpool and everywhere in between like i've had the pleasure of uh had the pleasure of going there and i think that um yeah it it really is just such a varied and kind of mixed picture across the piece but there are some those common themes that i mentioned we've talked a bit about the personalization
1: of services and the empowerment of service users what sort of
4: solutions do you see to to, to bring that about so this is definitely an issue that's close to my heart and i think that it's an easy thing to say and it's a really hard thing to do so um locally we're seeing like examples of things like citizens assemblies becoming like more popular they're definitely getting um quite a lot of airtime at the moment i think that you need to think really carefully locally about whether that's the right option for you or whether that's just the latest thing that you've heard about and um, there are definitely different mechanisms that you can use and um, i would say that like the ones that err towards the more formal actually like are the ones that excite me the most so like how are you really embedding people into your governance structures and how are you giving them a proper voice so coming back to um the point that Sally made earlier around like the personalization of care i think not just thinking about it in terms of me as the recipient of a package of care um, somewhere but rather like how can I as someone who has experienced that and like represent myself locally and then help to inform and shape the future of that care as well. And I think that um, there's really interesting models that have come out of kind of Canada and New Zealand where people have done that, but it also takes time and it takes investment. So really those local institutions need to be thinking about how they can upskill and train people to properly interact with those sorts of things and set out a really clear remit and role for them. I think in the absence of a lot of those things, that personalization and that meaningful participation can be undermined and you end up with something which is um, almost like participatory theatre where you can see it happen but there's no end product to it and it has to be about end product obviously uh,
1: social care users are all individuals and diff- different types of individuals as older people people with learning disabilities people with physical um, disabilities um so I mean are there different strategies one can use to personalize services
4: in each of those different areas so i feel nervous perhaps about saying like personalised service to each individual need. I think what you need is an understanding of how people with certain needs interact with different services and how you can respond effectively to them. That's not about making it about the person, it's about making sure that they have a user-centred experience of that care and I think that those two things are subtly but importantly different and I think that the kind of principle which has been around for a long time like no decision about me without me is really important and like making sure that's embedded into it and like giving the people who have a range of different um, like challenges the opportunity to advocate effectively for themselves and supporting them to do that is a really important part of it and I think that actually embedding the use of data and insights into the way that services are commissioned, the way that those contracts are subsequently managed, and the nature of the relationship between the commissioner and different set providers is fundamental to making sure that they have that opportunity to have that experience. Again, I mean, I, I feel like I'm almost uh, doing a bit of marketing for Rob uh, after what you were saying here earlier, but if I think back to some of the work that took place in North East Lincolnshire around a more relational model of contracting between the council, the CCG and the local providers. So moving away from something which was around the formal mechanisms um, for delivering care and how you might work a contract through like that, but rather thinking, we're trying to improve outcomes for these people. How can we, collectively have a shared mission around that and what are the outcomes that we would want to see for them and how can we involve them in the decisions around that and I think like that kind of uh, like end-to-end piece is really really important for that as well a lot of the goings-on in this particular
1: sector are colored by the the, the lack of resources lack of financial resources available uh, do
4: you get a sense that there are more efficiencies to be made here um so I mean, I have a background in local government myself having worked across uh, three different local authorities and I think I've started uh, at the beginning of austerity. Um, and so, like, my entire career has seen that take place and I've been a part of it from both sides. Um, I struggle to see really how you can keep making efficiencies. Um, like it, it, I would say that local government particularly is like incredibly efficient. It marshals its resources well. It has cultivated... Um, a culture of innovation over the past decade as well, which I now think is really well embedded. If you think about things as well, like the local digital fund and the whole movement around fix the plumbing, a phrase which I'm very fond of, um, like you've got a lot of work that's taken place to actually really try and think about where those efficiencies might lie. And like now you're really looking at like, uh, I suppose just, a re- in my eyes at least, a reduction. I think that more opportunity um, for innovation rather than efficiency, lies in the NHS and that the budgets there have been more generous (laughs) like you've only got to look at the kind of package of funding which is associated with what's coming from the national insurance rise and where that goes to understand of what like that um, delineation between the two still exists and I think that there is a real opportunity to think about the move to ICSs and how you can bring some of the best of local government and that kind of innovation and efficiency to the NHS, and then think about what you would do with a la- larger pool of funding locally to to do something quite exciting, because it's very often that you get the reduction in funding with the need to innovate rather than an increase in funding and the opportunity to innovate. So um, something like that would be uh, like something I hope to see the sector take forward. And can I just ask you about technology? I mean, it, um, to what
1: extent is, does technology offer new solutions, new ways of doing things in social care?
4: Um, so I, I think that there are opportunities. I think that there are also risks. So I think that it can be easy to assume that a new piece of technology is going to be the answer, be that putting an Amazon Alexa in someone's home or whether it's more formally like looking at the possibilities for the use of um, AI and things like that at a greater scale. Really, I think that you need to be thinking about what is it that that person needs to achieve the outcomes that they want. It's not necessarily going to be a piece of technology that offers you that solution or offers them the best possible outcome in their life. I also think as well as I uh, think ahead um, to like bigger picture health and care integration questions that there are like some fairly solid foundations that would need to be laid. So whether it's around IT service management, whether it's about like cloud data, whether it's communication systems, device management, all that sort of stuff. It's not sexy, but it's all things that need to be like considered and sorted Quite quickly and then on, and only then can you actually start to layer on top some of the innovations as well so whether that is around um things like population management or whether it's uh, interactive patient access things like that there's lots of things which are emerging but those they can only really flourish once that other stuff is sorted so you would hope that that approach is taken and we don't just rush to have that thin veneer of technological innovation which actually doesn't deliver improved care or outcomes as well. Um, I want to open it up to the the discussion up
1: to all of us now, but I'll turn to Rob initially. Um, Can I ask you this? What what do we need from the the government in this integration white paper that's due?
3: Clarity, obviously. Go back to my earlier point, um, an understanding and acknowledgement that each part of a system, particularly at the place level, is very, very different. And integration for me isn't just about integration, it's about parity of esteem. So if the local government sector and the NHS sector and the voluntary community sector are going to be brought even closer together as they are being brought together in across the country, if it's going to go to that next level, I think it's that absolute clarity that there is equality across the two big sectors for me. From my experience, that that, that clashing of cultures The NHS machine and the local democracy process around local government sometimes do not align. Um, That will never be squared as a circle because it's different. But if places are to be charged with leading place, then those leaders within the place, clinical, political, organisational, executive, non-executive, need to be given the freedom to do that. So um, long-winded answer to a very straightforward question flexibility, freedom, agility, but with the with a commitment to the resources to enable us to do it. And I go back to my earlier point, it's not all about the money, but once we've got those resources, that one conversation is a system about how they are best applied and best used. So no one part of the system benefits by default or has, the, has full control of the purse strings. It's got to be done together.
1: Sally, can I ask the same question to you?
2: Yeah, um, so I build on Rob's answer because I, I agree with all of those aspects of it. And I guess um, for me... There's a bit about when we've talked about integration in the past, it's tended to end up being a discussion about structures. It's health and well-being boards, it's integrated care systems, it's place-based single leaders, whatever they might be called. Um, And I think those are important. But actually, one of the things that has held back the proper kind of pace and progress on integration is that loads of other policies in the system have sort of worked against the stated aims about integration. So you've had a sort of set of financial incentives and financial flows that don't quite support integration. You've had maybe outcome frameworks and accountability frameworks that don't quite encourage that really. You've had, uh, we train our leaders in silos rather than in an integrated way. So I think for me, there's also the white paper and this isn't sexy headlining stuff, but actually if it could start to, really try and corral the rest of those policy and practice levers behind. We are serious about integration. We therefore want to make sure all of those different contributory factors are dialed up to support integration rather than being the sort of historic protecting an individual organisation or type of service. I think that would be really beneficial as well.
4: David, what would you like to see? Honestly, I'd like to see some more support for leadership. Uh, I think that when I look out at the kind of new world ahead of us, I look at huge footprints, uh, much bigger budgets, much more responsibility uh, and very little in the way of support development uh, in place that can actually help these people who are taking on that enormous responsibility locally to uh, think about what it means to lead in that environment with that scale of change available to them. So uh, I, I would really hope that there's something that we can do that can really support them on that um, on that journey as well. And this final question I want to ask you all, and I'll start with you, David, on this. Social care,
1: it, there's been a sense things have been tough and possibly getting worse in many respects for a
4: long time. Are you optimistic? I am. I'm a, I'm a naturally optimistic person. Uh, and I'm optimistic because of the people that I know that work in the sector, that have the kind of creativity, the clarity of purpose and the track record of successful delivery to really make a, a good fist of this. Um, it doesn't mean that my optimism is without concerns and um, they are there. I worry about the things that we've discussed today, particularly, but um, yeah, ov- overall, I think I always, I always trend to the good and hope that that kind of the arc of change is long, but it heads upwards. Rob, are you optimistic for adult social care?
3: I'm a lawyer by background, so I can only be cautiously optimistic, <laughs> um, but I am cautiously optimistic. Uh, that said... I think there needs to be a lot more investment in relationship building, learning, being allowed to maybe get it wrong, build on that. Um, And the the organisational development piece, the culture piece, the OD piece, which Sally was touching on really in many respects earlier, um, a real commitment to what that means for reshaping systems in large geographies or small geographies. Bolting stuff together is not the answer. Learning by doing is something I like to practice, don't always get it right, but learning by doing, having a go, sounds very simple, doesn't it? But actually it's really, really hard. But that's how you get the best outcomes
1: overall and the best learning. And Sally, are you optimistic?
2: Uh, So I think I'm going to finish us on a less optimistic note and I'd really love to be optimistic. So I think, uh, I guess one of the things we haven't spent much time talking about today is the power and the opportunity in social care, both in terms of the quality of life, it supports people to live, the economic benefit of a growing workforce, so huge opportunity. And I think a real sense of a much bigger group of people understanding that as this is an opportunity and not a burden. but when I just look at the hard, cold numbers of the amount of people waiting for assessments, the amount of unmet need, the workforce position, and put that against the plans for the next three years i 'm just not i, I don 't think that social care can survive to be honest in some parts of the country so I, I think if we 're saying optimistic about what because if I was a uh, needing social care i i 'd be really worried about can the social care sector meet my needs uh, over the next two or three years so optimistic on there's a greater sense of vision and opportunity but much more pessimistic about where we are now and what support there is for the system over the next two or three years and is what um, and what is that mismatch going to do for people who need to draw on social care and for the people uh, providing and commissioning social care
1: well that brings us to the end of this episode of the local authority thank you to my panelists sally warren rob walsh and david we will be back again next month
0: This podcast was brought to you by LGC and TPX Impact. Local Government Chronicle, or LGC, is the leading title for senior local government officers and the authoritative voice of the sector. To subscribe to LGC for full online and print access, go to lgcplus.com. TPX Impact is a change agency on a mission to build 21st century public sector institutions which are catalysts for change in the internet and climate era to radically improve outcomes for communities. For more information, go to tpximpact.com TPX Impact, transformation that matters.